You're listening to the first episode of Facing It, a podcast about climate grief, eco-anxiety, and what it means to be human in the age of climate crisis. Dr. Jennifer Atkinson will guide you on a journey through the emotional toll of ecological loss and mass extinction, and offer strategies for moving from despair to action in our fight for a livable future. This series is produced by Intrasonics UK with the music and sound recordings of Cryon. I want to talk about eco-grief and climate depression. That sadness and loss we feel for our burning planet. For all the lost beauty. For wildlife that won't survive the upheavals to come for devastated communities and places, and for the suffering that didn't have to happen. We usually talk about the external impacts of our climate crisis, damage to landscapes, to the atmosphere and oceans, even our physical health. But there's a whole landscape of damage we carry inside of us as well. Our mental health is intimately linked to the natural world, And living through an age defined by so much destruction of life is bound to mark us by invisible traumas. If we want to overcome the paralysis that's keeping us from responding like this is an emergency, if we want to take the next steps towards healing and action, we have to face up to that buried grief and anxiety for our planet. I know this isn't the kind of prescription you hear in political discussions or scientific recommendations for reducing carbon emissions. But for decades, those approaches have failed to move us to action because they don't address our climate crisis at the most basic human level. When I was growing up in a rural part of California... We would sometimes sleep outside on our deck in the summer, and the sound of crickets was so intense, it felt like falling asleep in a bath of nature sounds. Sometimes an owl would softly call out from the trees overhead, and living that far from town put you in a thick, liquid darkness where you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. But if you opened your eyes in the middle of the night, the stars and the Milky Way overhead were electric. I have so many memories of that place, and what stands out most aren't specific events, but simple images. Swimming in the creek with our dogs, the trees we climbed, clouds of white moths fluttering around the porch light, like when you shake a snow globe. The California countryside wasn't just a place where I lived, it was who I was, and it shaped everything I came to love about this wild, living planet. So a few years back, when a decade of mega droughts and extreme heat set off historical wildfires that ripped through California, it felt like a death in my family. I'd moved to Seattle ten years earlier, so all I could do was watch helplessly on a screen 
while my childhood landscape turned to ashes. The forests where we used to play hide-and-seek were swallowed by flames, and fires spread so widely that smoke across the west coast was visible to orbiting satellites. People less fortunate than our family lost their homes, and in some cases their lives. Survivors told stories of jumping into lakes and swimming pools, of flames licking at their heels as they ran to cars to escape. The animals in those burn zones couldn't give interviews of their own, but I couldn't shake the pictures in my head of their fur on fire and bodies turned to ashes. But even though the pain from that experience was more intense than any destruction of place I'd felt before, the basic feeling wasn't really new. I think for years we've all been experiencing a kind of unacknowledged grief for our planet. Every day brings heartbreaking news of mass extinctions and dying oceans, displaced communities, vanishing forests, collapsing glaciers. How can anyone absorb that without being shaken to the core? But we don't live in a culture that openly mourns those kinds of losses, and that makes it hard to really process their magnitude or personal impact. When I think about the conversations I've had about grief over the years, and the self-help books and support groups and rituals that give us collective ways to mourn, they're almost always for the loss of other people. And while we might be familiar with the stages of mourning after a human loved one dies, denial, guilt, anger, depression, and finally acceptance, we don't really have a language to describe the pain of witnessing the death of ecosystems and other species. At least, not until now. In the last few years, terms like environmental grief, eco-anxiety, climate depression, and pre-traumatic stress have crept into our vocabulary. And it's not just tree-huggers and climate protesters using those terms. Mental health experts, including the American Psychological Association, have been churning out research linking climate change impacts to depression, post-traumatic stress, anxiety and sleep disorders, substance abuse, and even suicide. When you think about it, it shouldn't really surprise anyone. Farmers are losing livelihoods from drought. Megafires and superstorms have erased entire towns. People are being displaced across the world, while indigenous communities in the Arctic have lost hunting practices and ancestral ways of life as the ice melts away beneath them. And to make things worse, vulnerable and marginalized communities are suffering the heaviest emotional impacts of this climate chaos since they already struggle with inadequate access to affordable shelter and safe drinking water, mental health and emergency services, and so many other forms of support. All of that makes it much harder to recover from a disaster, whether physically or emotionally. But the problem is more than just climate catastrophes and extreme weather events we see on the news. Long before I watched California go up in flames, my childhood landscape had already been changing in a thousand subtle ways, as creeks dried up and new housing developments dimmed the stars and made the nights less quiet. We all have those stories of slow-moving changes in our daily lives, the gradual loss of bees and songbirds, dying trees along the road, fishing trips where you come home with less and less every year. 
The philosopher Glenn Albrecht coined a term to describe this experience, where a familiar place starts to feel strange. He calls it solastalgia. It's similar to nostalgia, a longing for some time or place you can't go back to. But with solastalgia, that homesickness happens without ever leaving home. A couple years ago, when I started to adopt this vocabulary, it made it possible to talk more openly about environmental loss with students at the University of Washington. I knew they were feeling despair and anger too, but the absence of any clear language made it hard to put their fingers on it. When we brought up terms like eco-grief and climate depression and solastalgia, students got it immediately, like something invisible that had been following them around suddenly took shape and had a name. They said it described exactly what they felt as summer skies were dimmed with smoke and fewer hummingbirds came to their backyards. Hearing students talk openly about their climate distress motivated me to look for some new ways to help, and one day when a student confessed she was switching to another major because environmental studies was too depressing, I decided to offer a seminar where we could address the emotional toll head-on. I posted flyers around campus to advertise this new course on eco-grief and anxiety, and the day registration opened, every seat filled. A couple months later, local and national news outlets started reporting on our class. Letters poured in from readers nearby and around the world who were comforted at least to learn they weren't alone in feeling despair. Those messages came from grandparents and nurses, school kids and scientists and baristas. It wasn't just me. It wasn't just our students. Eco-grief was everywhere. That's what this podcast series is about. We're going to explore climate anxiety and eco-grief, and the way I've seen it affect scientists, climate strikers and students, communities on the front lines who've been directly affected, even people in denial. As it turns out, a big part of denial comes from unresolved grief, from the failure to recognize and mourn our losses. When we lose something of value, but then carry on with our lives like nothing's really changed, we block off our hearts and minds from the profound connections we share with the natural world. This isn't about surrendering to despair. That won't help anyone. But it's time to admit that we're not failing to act because we're too consumed with sadness. We're paralyzed from acting precisely because we refuse to feel. It's like being trapped in a state of emotional sleepwalking. But reconnecting with those painful insights can shake us back into a waking state so we can step up and act before more is lost. Sometimes in doing environmental work, you hear that we need to avoid negative emotions that could lead to despair, that we have to always focus on hope and action and the future. There's no doubt that expressing hope is important, but I think that exclusive approach is the symptom of a culture that automatically sees the dark parts of our psyche as dysfunctional. I thought about this a lot last year when I lost my dad to cancer. I got some good advice from people who knew about grief and loss firsthand, and no one said to push the pain aside and just forge ahead to focus on the positive. 
They reminded me to sit with those hard feelings, to be present with my pain and anger and whatever else rose to the surface in that process. When I felt like crying in the middle of the workday, that's what my heart needed to heal, and I should talk about it openly and seek support from others. The cultural wisdom of the ages and all our world religions know this. Grieving doesn't lead to endless suffering. It leads to healing and mental health. Why should our grief for the world be any different than the loss of a loved one? Maybe the courage to mourn is all the more urgent as we look toward our climate future. Because this assault isn't like the death of a single person you can finally accept and move on from. Ecological loss will continue on some level, even if we take decisive action immediately. Grief is strength in these times. Burying our emotions might shield us for a while, but grief keeps us in contact with truth. And beneath everything, it opens our eyes to the profound love we feel for the fabric of life that's under threat. Grief is a direct expression of connection, a pain we could never feel if it weren't for the depth of our love. And more than cheerfulness or stoicism or more information, it is love that will move us to fight. No scientific report or technological innovation will ever match that kind of power.